0: Welcome to the FIFA Living Football Podcast with me, Reshmin Chowdhury. On the show this week, managerial royalty and Mister Invincible himself, Mister Arsene Wenger, the greatest and probably the most recognizable referee of all time, Pierluigi Collina. We go to Mexico to discover how women's football is getting back on track during the pandemic. Plus, our special guest today is a New Zealand footballing legend who was involved in this shock result in the 2010 FIFA World Cup. Oh, and a touch in! New Zealand remarkably break the deadlock. Another remarkable story unfolding here. Hello from me, Reshmin Chowdhury, and welcome along to the fourth episode of the Living Football Podcast. We'll be with you every two weeks, right up until the end of the year, to discuss all things FIFA. My guest today is a former New Zealand defender who is the country's most capped international of all time, with 88 appearances between 1995 and 2013. He made his debut for Waitakere City FC in 1993 and went on to spend eight years in the Netherlands playing for Roda and RKC Walwick. He was named the Oceana Footballer of the Year in 2009. He started all three group matches at the 2010 FIFA World Cup in South Africa. He is the only player to have played in four consecutive FIFA Club World Cups. And he became a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to football in 2015. A very warm welcome from Down Under to Ivan Visselich.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
0: <laughs> yeah, great to have you too. Now, I can confirm that I'm having a cup of tea because for us, it's quite early in the morning and we're at opposite ends of the spectrum, aren't we? Because as soon as we're done, you're probably going to bed.
1: Yeah, that's right. We're, uh, I think, about 30 miles away, so I haven't got. A cup of tea but I've uh, got some juice so that won't keep me up too long.
0: <laughs> no it definitely won't and um, now you obviously have a record 88 caps for your national team and uh, you were the only nation to go unbeaten at the 2010 FIFA World Cup that is quite an achievement isn't it?
1: Yeah it is it was an incredible time I mean um, you know to play for my country one time would have been amazing and uh, you know an honour to play uh, 88 times for my country and to represent them at the World Cup was, was, was a dream come true and you know, for a country uh, like New Zealand to perform and get three results like that at a World Cup. And, and one of those was against the reigning champions, Italy. You know, it was something that really changed football in New Zealand. And, um, you know, it really made the world stand up and, and see New Zealand as, you know, not just at the other end of the world, but also someone that can that can perform in football and, and get some good results. So it really helped um, in that era to, to help re-kickstart the, uh, the football uh, community in New Zealand.
0: How much fun did you guys have? actually being out at the World Cup?
1: Well, the World Cup was tremendous. I mean, uh, FIFA always puts on a good show and, and for us together as players, a lot of the, the players in the team have been pros for, for many, many years. And, um, you know, as everyone knows, you know, you, you train your life to play for your country and to play at the World Cup. And, and for the guys and and me, and myself, you know, we've been together a long time. We knew each other really well. So... Yeah, not only was it a thrill to play at the World Cup, but that was great to do. That was people that we'd spent many years with, training hard and working together, and and those relationships just you know became even better.
0: Yeah, no, I can absolutely imagine. We're going to hear more from from you, Ivan, on the the stand-up moments from your career later on in the show. But for now, we have such a treat for you. It is an exclusive interview with one of the world's greatest ever managers, Arsene Wenger. Now, his Arsenal team went through the entire 2003-2004 season unbeaten in the Premier League. That is why they are called the Invincibles. The Frenchman is now FIFA's Chief of Global Football Development. And speaking to our living football TV host, Jessica Libberts, he explained why we might might be able to expect more goals in football in the future.
2: More goals is, uh, you know, we want to help the game to become uh, more spectacular, uh, quicker and more enjoyable to watch and to play as well. So we have, uh, of course, I have people around me who think about how can we make uh, this game more attractive. It's the most popular sport in the world at the moment, but I think as well it's a trick there That you have not to refuse to evolve, you know, and to stand still would be bad.
3: So what does it mean concrete? Because you have a new idea.
2: I have a new idea and I have many, many ideas. And uh, of course we have have to check them, to experiment them and then to come to conclusions. One of them is uh, to use uh, the offside rule, to change a little bit the offside rule.
3: You presented that new idea Mm -hmm. at the last annual IFAB meeting. How did this idea originally come about?
2: It came uh, uh, basically with the introduction of the VAR. Mm -hmm. Because uh, in the rule of the offside is in case of uncertainty, the referee gives the benefit of a doubt to the striker. And uh, with the VAR, the benefit of a doubt disappeared because Mm -hmm. the precision of the VAR always goes a little bit against the striker, because with a fraction, fraction in front, before it was goal, today not anymore, because the VAR said, no, I'm sorry, a little part of your body was in front, and therefore the goal is disallowed. So it is a bit anti-emotional, so we have seen many frustrating situations because of that.
3: So far, changes to the offside rule have been extremely rare. So let's listen to what FIFA president Gianni Infantino said about it at the most recent press conference.
4: We will test a potential change to the offside uh, law, uh, an offside law which has uh, uh, actually only changed uh, twice in uh, 135 years of IFAB. It was, uh, well, the first one was introduced in 1866, where you had to have three players behind Uh, then in 1925 it was two players then in 1990 the attacker could be online with uh, or in line with the not online in line with the defender online we are it's a different story um our aim as ifab and i'm speaking under the control of uh, my colleagues from the ifab is always to see if we can make football more attractive without changing the nature obviously of football When it comes to the offside uh, law, with the change in the game, with the speed in the game, with also the introduction of uh, VAR, which uh, makes it clear when there is an offside and when there is not an offside, whereas without VAR, the referees uh, were having the instructions in case of doubt, you let go, right? We have been uh, seeing that maybe, maybe we can think about a new law which allows a bit more attack in, in football.
3: Okay, as the rule currently stands, let's make this clear: you're offside if a part of your body that could be used to score a goal is no longer level with yes. the opposing player. What could or what would change now?
2: What I, we propose is as long as any part of your body is level with the defender, you can score with. You're not offside.
3: You're not offside. You're
2: not offside. Okay,
3: so the attacker gains a whole stride.
2: Exactly. Awesome. Approximately, yes.
3: Approximately. How does that affect the game? What does the statistics say?
2: Well, uh, uh, it means that uh, we have to first analyse the impact on the tactical behaviour of the defenders. We uh, will they have to drop deeper or we will they have to be more aggressive in the offside. And as well, uh, how many times in the game has that an impact? Uh, we know, on average, until now, we have four offsides in the Premier League per game. On our analysis of the situations we made, uh, we have, we would have only two offsides. So you could have two more situations. But you have as well, you know, s- marginal situations where uh, the player could uh, have a bigger advantage uh, than we expected. So we have to experiment it and, uh, Uh, This will happen. Uh, What we have planned is to experiment it uh, during national seasons, Mm -hmm. playing six months with uh, half of a season with the former rule and half of a season with the new rule. Okay. And then come to a conclusion.
3: And how is the proposal received so far?
2: Look, I've gone uh, with my team for consultation uh, with uh, managers, defenders, midfielders, strikers uh, from all over the world. And uh, to sum it up a little bit, uh, briefly, the defenders were against it. (laughs) Hmm,
5: What (laughs) a surprise! uh, What
2: a surprise! (laughs) And the strikers were all for it, and uh, the midfielder was half-half. So it, it is An idea that was not rejected and as well you cannot say everybody was overboard because the defenders, (laughs) of course, they they don't want to concede goals, what you can understand. Of
3: course. We have already talked about the next steps. We've also heard about an automated offside. Uh, Can you explain this a little bit?
2: The automated offside means at the moment uh, uh, we have seen situations here where players are on lines, you know, uh, to see if they are offside or not. Uh, at the moment, uh, the average time is, is we have to wait to decide who is offside mm-hmm. and who is not offside. On average, maybe 71 seconds or around 70 seconds, you know, sometimes one minute, 20 seconds. What is sometimes
3: quite, it feels a little bit longer.
2: Sometimes even <laughs> a little bit longer when the situation is very difficult to, to uh, appreciate. And uh, we have uh, the automated offside. I think we'll be ready for 2022. That means uh, automated, that means it goes directly from the signal to the linesman. And the linesman has a, on his watch a red light that tells him offside or not offside. And
3: it's yeah. also important for the emotions in football.
2: It is so important because we see many celebrations who are cancelled after that. And of course, we are Exactly all for, for marginal situations. And that's why I, I believe... That is a very important step for. uh, And the semi automated, it goes first through the VAR who signals it to the linesman. But uh, we, especially me, I'm uh, of course pushing very hard to have automated off-site. That means straight away uh, the signal goes to the linesman.
3: There is a lot of stakeholder engagement uh, to go through before IFAB and FIFA, um, both for IFAB and FIFA. How important is it for FIFA to have the buy-in of the global football community?
2: We are a world sport and uh, so we need everybody to be on board, you know, as well. And that's why we, it takes uh, longer than you would want it to take. But as well, because it's uh, all over the world, uh, we play with the same rules. It's important to have a good experimentation before you make decisions.
3: Let's come to your personal career. I mean, you hold the record for the most Premier League games managed. Um, You are Arsenal's most successful manager of all time, an officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire. I love that. Uh, You won the league three times and the FA Cup seven times. So which title or award meant the most for you?
2: Well, maybe uh, the first one, because I came completely unknown, Uh, England was a bit isolated football-wise, you know, and they could open the way for other managers. But as well, uh, you know, when I look back, uh, uh, I believe that uh, uh, what is uh, uh, the most difficult at the top level is the consistency. And as well, what I like very much in our job is uh, the values you generate as a a manager at the football club, you know the impulse you give to a club, uh, to, for the structures, the brand all over the world, the values that you defend, the influence you have on individual people, and I think that's uh, what I'm the most proud of. You win, you lose, you know titles, but what is very important is uh, I could build a stadium, I could build a training ground. and. Uh, uh, I
3: I mean, if you compare Arsenal at the time you were arriving and now this is a completely different world.
2: It's a different world and uh, so when you look back, you're happy for having contributed somewhere to generate that.
3: It's amazing and you're also currently working on a documentary about Mm. the Invincibles, the team that went through the entire 2003-2004 season without losing one single league match.
2: Yes, I wanted, you know, you know, when you see the, the table, we have W win, D draw, and L loss. Mm-hmm. And, and I, there was want, a zero. I wanted a zero <laughs> under the, uh, the L. And it was my dream because I think the most important is a, a real champion is a uh, produce quality to push himself as far as you can, but as well be capable to repeat because it's a sign of humility. That means if I do something special tonight, you have to come in tomorrow morning and think I start from zero again and I do it again. And I explained to the players that the real champions tend to that consistency and that urgency on day-to-day basis. And that's why I think that uh, was something special.
3: Definitely, and no other team has managed to repeat the feat.
2: Yes, and that that shows you, you know, that great teams, Man City, Chelsea. Yeah, but there is not a zero. No, there is no zero Because uh, it is difficult to achieve.
3: As FIFA's chief of global football development, what are your main goals now apart from the new offside rule?
2: You know, uh, the offside rule is only a small, small part of uh, my responsibility. Of course. I would say to sum it up uh, as simple as possible FIFA until now has gone mainly on organizing competition, organized always uh, massive competitions, especially the World Cup, as a guard of the uh, rules of the game and uh, was kept that in a very strong way mm-hmm. and as well as now taken an educational responsibility. I'm part of that, you know. I'm part of uh, being responsible to develop the educational part of the FIFA program. That means educating coaches, educating players all over the world and uh, try to make the game more beautiful by educating better the players. So my main responsibility is uh, creating research center, creating an academy online for the community, for our football community, as well for public. And as well, another part of it is to create uh, a sophisticated but simple analysis of the top game. And explain that to our fans and uh, to the broadcasters.
0: Yes, yeah, so many um, interesting points, Ivan, to come out of that chat with uh, Arsene Wenger, who is now FIFA's chief of global football development. I mean, when Arsene speaks, we all listen because he's such a massive legend in this game, isn't he?
1: Yes, yeah, he is. I mean, he's had a, an incredible career and he's got so much knowledge and experience. So, you know, to have him on board at FIFA is, uh, is great for FIFA and great for football in general.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He's a great character as well. I can add great sense of humour. He really, really does. He's got that quick wit and his his command of every single subject is fantastic, I can tell you that. Um, Now, it's interesting to hear his points, though, because uh, this is really, really, you know, on the serious side. You know, he's talking about The the offside rule, which has been sort of up for debate, a lot of, uh, I suppose, controversy with the introduction of technology and a lot of uh, incidents, I would say, particularly in the Premier League that we've seen in recent weeks. And um, what Wenger is actually advocating is for attackers to be onside as long as any body part with which they can use to score is level with their second-to-last opponent. That's what he is advocating. What do you make of this new
1: idea? Yeah, that's right. That's what I got from that, uh, those points that he said. I think what he's... For starters, what I think what he's trying to do is improve the uh, the game and to make it more exciting. And what he's saying is that it's going to create more goal-scoring opportunities. So, you know, for us in football and for the spectators, you know, one of the major components of football is scoring the goal. And one of the most enjoyable parts of that is scoring goals. So if we can look at different ways that we can... Benefit the game and change, potentially change a game to increase goals. Well, then it's something that IFAB and FIFA have to take seriously, and I think that's what he said. He said, um, you know, he's put the project forward. He's asked uh, IFAB to assist it, and uh, you know, potentially take it to trials. And look, if those trials work and and it does create a great benefit for the game and make it more exciting and more uh, goal scoring opportunities, well, then you know it could be something that's considered. And um, you know, it's something that he's he's not taking lightly. It's something that IFAB won't take lightly. And, uh, you know, something that I guess once the trials and the process has gone through that you made a decision on.
0: Mm, I mean, obviously, it's all about goal scoring, but you're a former defender. That has a whole new meaning for, for someone like you, you yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. When I first came up in the meeting, I thought, well, what's going on here? <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, look, in the, in the bigger scope of the game, obviously, you know, we, lo- we love the goals and it's something that, that the, the game would have to adapt to. And it's something that, uh, you know, the process just needs to go along and, and it can't happen quickly. It needs to take months and months. And especially now in the pandemic, you know, this this could take uh, quite a while to go through that trial process.
0: When you were playing, did you see lots of instances which you thought were a little bit unfair on the attacker that, you know, the, the advantage could have been given?
1: Look, I see that every day, you know. <laughs> You know, as long as you and everyone else, we watch football all the time and it's, it's very difficult. Every decision is debatable. And, um, you know, without VAR, without that introduced in 2018, there were still, you know, discussions around what was wrong, what was right in a lot of football games and, and a lot of moments in the game. So, you know, the introduction on VAR has just meant that those very, very tough decisions that we we can maybe review and see, we can get those right and, and for the benefit of the game, you know, it can, uh, it can help the game improve.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, really what we're here for and what we want as uh, people who love football. Now, from one of the um, best managers in history to one of the best referees in history, perhaps the best, actually, he was named FIFA's best referee of the year six consecutive times. Pierluigi Colina refereed the 1996 Olympics final, the 1999 UEFA Champions League final and the 2002 FIFA World Cup final in which Brazil beat Germany 2-0. Now, we started by asking Colina about... About his most memorable moments from that final in Japan.
5: Well, I, this is typical of uh, referees and uh, myself in particular. Uh, when you have uh, uh, such an important game like a uh, World Cup final, you are very focused on, uh, on the match, uh, before the match, during the match. Uh, so <clears throat> there is no time to, to enjoy what uh, is going to happen or uh, what is uh, happening. Um, I have to say that uh, I remember what happened during the match because I've seen it uh, afterwards uh, uh, on television. What I really remember was the emotion I felt uh, after the match uh, when I realized uh, that uh, it was done and, uh, and I really lived uh, that moment uh, during the, the ceremony, the handover of uh, the, the, the gold medal. The, the applause of the whole stadium. Uh, I must tell you that uh, when I think, even nowadays, uh, to those moments, I still feel uh, the goosebump. It's, uh, <laughs> it's unbelievable.
3: Pierluigi, you are the most known referee on earth, highly respected by players and fans. You have been, and you still are an inspiration for young match officials who dream about a career like yours. What was it that fascinated you about refereeing? That kept you motivated all the time to become the best referee
5: of all time? Well, I have to say I started by chance, uh, so I had no idea to, to continue. It's something that I, I experienced when I was 17 years old and uh, at that age, uh, it is normal for a youngster to do something only for the curiosity to, to do it without, uh, I repeat, any, any objective. Uh, but then, uh, being uh, quite, uh, quite a challenging person, I like uh, to face uh, new challenges. So I've been told that I was uh, dealing quite well with that task. And uh, I always try to put uh, uh, another objective ahead of me, step by step. And uh, and of course, uh, this was a great motivation to to continue to improve. And I continue to do it uh, until uh, the very last match I uh, refereed Because... Uh, I was and I'm still very convinced that uh, this is the way to get uh, uh, yourself very motivated. Always thinking that uh, there is something that you can do better than the match before.
3: There's something that interests me personally very much, because you were a referee before all the new technology appeared. How did you deal with game-changing situations that you Probably didn't see, but everyone else saw.
5: Well, I think it's uh, the same for everyone who worked very hard to be up to the task, up to a difficult task. And uh, when something doesn't go as you would like, that uh, it would have gone, uh, you feel uh, frustration uh, because, uh, because something happened. Uh, unfortunately, we are a human being and uh, it is... Uh, Part of our our nature to commit mistake. So on one hand, uh, worked I worked and we are still working with the referees uh, in trying uh, to get them uh, very well prepared uh, to minimize uh, the possibility that uh, mistakes are committed uh, on the field of play. Uh, but then uh, we implemented the technology to provide referees uh, a further support uh, when uh, something. Uh, unfortunately, should uh, should happen.
3: Of course. And I mean, since the FIFA World Cup in 2018, uh, the VAR is reality in top football and the VAR was a great success in Russia. Um, you say that technology is like a parachute for referees. What exactly do you mean by that?
5: Well, um, I don't think that uh, a referee enters the field of play thinking that he will use uh, the VAR. I repeat uh, the referees work very hard to be prepared to deliver the best performance possible and uh, not to commit uh, any any mistake uh, to to take all the the calls uh, in uh, in a good uh, in a good way but uh, if something wrong should happen uh, it is uh, definitely better to have uh, uh, the VAR helping you as well as uh, when you are flying uh, you don't think that uh, you will need uh, a parachute. But uh, in case of need, uh, it is better to have it at your hand.
3: Well, it feels a lot better, definitely. It's a key objective of FIFA to harness technology. How important is it for making football truly global to make technology more accessible?
5: Well, uh, the objective of FIFA uh, is to have, uh, let's say, fair results on uh, on the field of play. And uh, technology can help to achieve uh, this, uh, uh, this objective. Part of uh, President Infantino's vision for the future is uh, to make uh, uh, VAR, so technology VAR in particular, more affordable for uh, a larger number of uh, member association or in uh, lower categories uh, within the same uh, member association. So we are uh, trying to, to, to find a solution that can be implemented in matches with a lower number of cameras available. You might have seen in the past, the setup of VAR at the FIFA World Cup 2018 in Russia with four video match officials, plus two review operators, a lot of monitors, a setup, which is a sort of five star, which is very difficult to be replicated in in other uh, competition uh, because of the cost, but also because of the human resources needed. So what we are trying to do is uh, to find out solution, I repeat, which are more affordable for a larger number of uh, member association or lower, lower competition.
3: Pierluigi, last uh, topic for today, different topic, but I have to say I truly loved her because we had her in the interview in the last episode of Living Football. So let me ask you about Edina alves Batista. What does her performance on the FIFA Club World Cup stage mean for female referees all over the world?
5: Well, I have to say that uh, the selection of uh, uh, women referees in uh, FIFA male competition started uh, already in 2017, when uh, Esther Staubli uh, was selected for the World Cup Under-17 in, uh, in India. And then uh, uh, Claudio Pierrez was uh, appointed uh, at the World Cup Under-17 in Brazil, 2019. And eventually Edina Alves uh, was at the Club World Cup, uh, first time in a senior male competition. So certainly has been uh, an achievement, for, for her in particular, but uh, we were not surprised. We were happy of the very good performance delivered by uh, Edina and uh, her assistant referees, uh, also female assistant referees uh, in this competition, but I repeat, we were not surprised. All the decisions in terms of uh, uh, referees' selections are taken because of quality, and this is what we will continue to do in uh, in in the future. We are already working uh, uh, very hard together with uh, the uh, FIFA Director of Refereeing, Massimo Busacca and also with uh, the FIFA head of Refereeing Women, Cari Saits, uh, to prepare the 2022 World Cup in Qatar and the 2023 World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. It seems that they are quite far away, but I repeat, uh, we are already Uh, working uh, to prepare the referees for uh, those competitions. Certainly, the ongoing pandemic uh, is making our job uh, uh, a bit more difficult. Um, Unfortunately, we cannot run uh, the the activities in person as uh, we would like uh, to do. Uh, Technology is helping us because uh, we are doing uh, our activities uh, from remote Not in presence, but uh, certainly we cannot wait uh, to to get uh, all together and to get back to the more familiar way to prepare referees for our competitions.
3: But as a woman, I have to ask this, Pierluigi, what are the chances that a female referee team is going to whistle a match at the men's FIFA World Cup?
5: Uh, I can say that... uh, we are we are preparing referees we are not preparing male or female referees we are preparing referees so certainly uh, the the criteria i mentioned before quality uh, is the one that will be chosen uh, for uh, the selection of our match official uh, so there will be time to make this uh, this uh, decision and i wish all the referees male and female to have the opportunity to be part of uh, Uh, this uh, competition because uh, it is uh, an experience I lived uh, twice in my life uh, which is uh, I would say simply great.
0: He is uh, quite frankly an absolute legend. Have you ever come across Pierluigi Colina Ivan because on the pitch whenever I've seen him in a football match he just looks really scary but listening to that interview he's just one of the warmest characters you could ever find.
1: Yeah, he is an incredible guy and um lucky to be uh, with him in some of the meetings. You know, he's got so much knowledge and experience, but I don't believe that I was refereed by him. But yeah, he, he did have a bit of a scary look, but he always looked calm as well. So uh, a, a top guy and... And again, some uh, you know really interesting uh, comments made and, and helping to improve the game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So many comments actually, and we'll be touching on on some of them as we go along. But uh, one of the you know really key ones that uh, he mentioned there is that as of next season, it's been ruled that an accidental handball that leads to a goal-scoring chance or a goal for a teammate will no longer be penalised. Now we've seen so many examples of this in the United Kingdom very recently. What are your thoughts on that, on the accidental handball?
1: Yeah, that's uh, another uh, massive debate. You know, I think what they've done is they've modified the word and so we consider interpret it in the correct way and the referees can interpret it in a way that they can make the decision based on that word and so. It's a, it's a rule that is always uh, debatable, but I think... Um, what they've tried to do is make it as easy as possible for us to see what the correct decision is and to understand it and to make it clear. Because as we know, the public are watching and, you know, it goes up on notices, notice boards after every game. There's always discussions around it. So trying to make that rule clear and 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 easy for us to read and understand is is really the key factor that I has done that.
0: Hmm. I mean, you're obviously a member of the IFAB advisory panel and you represent the Oceania Football Confederation in all this. How important is it to keep modernising the football laws to really keep up with how the game is changing?
1: Well, I think it's really important. I think, um, you know, a lot of it goes unnoticed. I mean, there's a lot of uh, rules that have gone on recently. I mean, even just recently, the one where the keeper can't pass out of the 18-yard box. You know, he can can restart the play by playing inside the 18-yard box means it's a good change for the game but there's not a lot of negative press around it. So we're always going to get those um, topics where there's going to be negative press around it or people upset with the decisions around it. But, you know, the game and technology increases every year as we go. So why can't we use it to benefit the game and to help the referees and to make the correct decisions and to make those decisions that can have huge impact on results at tournaments and leagues? If we can make it easier and, and better, then there's no reason why uh, you know we should slow down or we should stop doing what we're doing. I mean, it's, it's just a matter of time where um, we keep reviewing the game. I think the improvements come bit by bit, but it takes time to, for these improvements to come through. But, you know, in the long run, if it helps the game, it's going to be better for the game.
0: There's also a new idea that FIFA is going to continue to test semi-automated technology, and that's basically to detect offside. So a signal in this instance would be sent to the assistant referee almost instantly when uh, an offside is detected. So it would leave referees and their assistants just sort of needing to decide whether the offside player was interfering with play or not. What do you make of that particular change?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's a good step forward. I think uh, when technology is available to do that, I think that, can, that could help the assistant referees a lot. I mean, at the moment now, we have the lines drawn on the, on the TV. We see that it takes a little bit of time to get assessed by the vast staff behind the scenes. And it's really just about trying to speed it up. I mean, it has sped up lately, but it's another avenue where we can speed it up again. And if we can get technology that can do that for us and give a signal to a assistant referee that's a correct signal, then, uh, you know, it makes the game quicker and makes those decisions quicker. And, uh, you know, in the long term, it, it makes everyone happy on both sides, the players and also the supporters.
0: Mm. And it was interesting, something that Luigi Colina did mention there was the importance of sort of developing technology to make it affordable and accessible to sort of smaller nations, to as many uh, associations as possible. And that is something that. It's really important is it? it's called VAR Light, basically a sort of different sort of system but one that would be more accessible.
1: Yeah I think that's great you know it's a great thing that FIFA and IFAB do I and mean, FIFA in general helping every country in the world with football and the development and the infrastructure of all the confederations around the world so this is another aspect that um, you know can help the referees and the game and every part of the world to to get better and you know, even down under here on New Zealand, the VAR light would would be perfect for us. I mean, the budget and the costs that are uh, expensive for the high end leagues that they can afford, on that you know the lower leagues and the lower countries that haven't got that budget to to afford that can also benefit on uh, uh, on VAR light, as it's called. And and those decisions that need to be made and can be made by that, you know, that can be, as I said, game changing. So to get every team in the world to to benefit from that, that's great.
0: Okay. well, we've been so spoiled in this first half with two, well, two members of the football royal family, really. um, Arsene Wenger and Pierluigi Colina. Still to come, we'll be looking ahead to the first FIFA Women's World Cup to be co-hosted by two countries from different confederations. And we'll be finding out how the FIFA COVID relief plan has helped football in Mexico.
4: Hello, I'm Kaká and you are listening to FIFA's Living Football podcast.
0: Right, Ivan, let's focus on the upcoming 2023 Women's World Cup now, which, of course, is being hosted in New Zealand and Australia. How big do you think this could be for your country and the region as a whole?
1: Look, I think it's huge. I mean, it's, uh, we're talking about a World Cup here and a senior level World Cup and for the Women's World Cup to be co-hosted by Australia and New Zealand. It's so great for our region. I mean, we're, we're generally uh, competing against each other with Australia Always a little bit of rivalry there, but interesting to see if they uh, match up against each other in the in the World Cup. But um, yeah, look, we came together uh, nicely. We, we presented a great uh, project to FIFA, and and to be awarded the tournament is going to be great for our nations, and and especially for for New Zealand.
0: Well, when you look at uh, the impact of the FIFA Women's World Cup in France, over one point one billion people worldwide watched that tournament. I suppose when you think of where we were in 2019 and where we possibly could be in 2023 I don't know you get the feeling that it could be absolutely huge it could be off the scale.
1: Yeah it's an absolute game changer for any country and uh, you know for little New Zealand it's going to be the same you know and also for the players playing at a World Cup is very special but to play on home soil in a World Cup you know is something that um, you know just adds the, the sweetener to the to the deal and and these players are going to be able to walk out in uh, stadiums full of their own home supporters. And that's, you know, that from the playing side of you, that's incredible. For our country, it's great to show the world how, uh, how beautiful New Zealand is. And for all the supporters and players and coaches and and staff that are coming down to New Zealand and experience our shores and and to, you know, have a great experience is going to be, you know, incredible for, for uh, New Zealand society in whole.
0: Yeah. And how is the sort of football developed in new zealand in recent seasons because you know looking ahead to 2023 we're sort of expecting that it will be this absolute peak and the excitement levels will be so high what have been the sort of the main drivers behind developing um, football in new zealand up until this particular point and how do you see that developing up until 2023
1: well i think one of the key development areas for us has been the exposure to these tournaments at the highest level and um you know, firstly, the senior men's and the senior women's teams playing at World Cups and Olympic Games. has been great exposure for them, for those players, for our, our youngsters, our, our kids growing up to dream big and watch that on the world stage, but we also had, you know, club teams do really well at the Club World Cup. You know, we've been blessed to host three uh, age group World Cups in, in New Zealand. We had the 17s, men's and females, and we've had the men's under 20s, so we um, you know, this exposure to international football and the best footballers inspires those youngsters. And, and, and that's part of uh, the beauty of what the World Cup does for any nation that hosts it. It's not only a boost for us, our country, but also Oceania in a whole. So, you know, we're going to have uh, that exposure that our players need. And now the kids coming through to see that and to actually go to games and see the superstars on the soil in New Zealand, you know, you, you can't get better than that. And um It's just going to be uh, a tremendous time for them. And that's going to help with the development after that World Cup. So, you know, that that exposure at that, I mean, we've seen the likes of Chris Woods, Winston Reid, Ryan Thomas, Ali Riley, you know, Rhea Percival, Annalie Longo, all these players that, uh, you know, have come through age group tournaments and, and played at World Cups and gone on to you know, play and and have great professional careers. I mean, it's this exposure that is going to help and has helped us develop the game as well.
0: It's so exciting as well, isn't it? Just the thought of being able to be on your home turf and, as you say, seeing those superstars. What I want to know is how many people will you be batting away when they ask for tickets?
1: Yeah, there's going to be a big line. There's going to be a big line. So we need a big stadium, right?
0: Yeah, I think you could probably fill a stadium as well with all the, 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 your own people out there as well. Uh, really exciting times for uh, New Zealand and Australia. Tell me a little bit about the rivalry, actually, because, you know, when you look at, I mean, for example, here in, in the United Kingdom, there's, there's a healthy rivalry, but it's quite fierce between the home nations. What's it like between New Zealand and Australia?
1: Yeah, I think it's very similar. I mean, it's... um it's always been there and it, it potentially always will be. I mean, we're a lot of times we're seen as a, maybe the younger brother, you know, we're obviously the smaller nation in size and also in population. So we're always trying to uh, uh, punch above our weight to, to get results against them. So, uh, you know, it is that extra spice. And, uh, you know, in many sports, we we obviously have the competitive edge against each other. And, um, and it's actually been a long time on the on the male side that we've played each other. The last time could have potentially ended with a couple of red cards for one of the teams. So. But it's great. I mean, it's, it's really great for New Zealand because obviously we have a, a top nation in our doorstep and we can, you know, we can learn from them and we can also uh, develop wisdom along the way. So, you know, that competitive rivalry, uh, it helps with uh, improving the game in, 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 uh, in both countries.
0: Yeah, definitely does and definitely one to look forward to. And I'm sure there'll be so many activities in the run up to that tournament as well. Very exciting times indeed. Now, moving on, uh, we've heard in the last couple of uh, Living Football podcasts how FIFA has launched a relief plan in response to the COVID-19 pandemic with $1.5 billion being made available across the global football community. That money has been put to great use in Mexico, which has utilised FIFA funding to help women's football through the pandemic, as Rob Daly explains.
6: Mexican Football Association, the FMF, has come up with a unique way to make the most of FIFA's COVID-19 grant. It's invested nearly all of the money to support women's football, an initiative led by FMF Secretary-General Inigo Riestra. We believe that women's football has huge potential. It was important given the pandemic and the impact to the club's finances that the federation with the support received by FIFA allowed funds to help women's football continue to grow and get stronger. The funds have helped to support the women's national teams and to run the women's football league, the Liga MX Femenil. The sports director of Club America Femenil, Claudia Carrion, believes the assistance has been vital. We're
0: really grateful for the help we received. It helped us with our expenses and to support our players and the club to keep our environment healthy with tests, and with all the safety protocols to keep our environment free from infections.
6: The funding won't only help current players and coaches, but also youngsters who are hoping to follow in their heroes' footsteps. Monica Ocampo plays for Pachuca, one of the oldest football clubs in the Americas.
0: The support women's football is receiving is a very good thing. Now the new generations who dream to be professionals can achieve it. Now we have these opportunities in our hands, we have to make good use of them.
6: Like so many leagues around the world, the Liga MX Femenil is being played without supporters. But hopefully that will change in the coming months.
3: We would
0: love to have the fans here. Their support during the matches is very important for us. But we also know that right now, people need to stay home and use face masks. If we take care of each other, then the fans will be back soon.
6: Women's football is flourishing in Mexico and funding during the pandemic means that it can continue to go from strength to strength.
0: Yeah, it it's such an important message there, Ivan, um, about sort of working together, being there for one another. I suppose, you know, so many nations actually, we'll, we'll talk about New Zealand in a moment, but uh, so many nations have been hit by the global pandemic. And, you know, at these times it's it's easy to put life on hold but it's so important with the momentum that women's football has that there is a FIFA COVID relief plan in place to make sure that all the progress made in women's football doesn't get lost because of the pandemic.
1: Yeah that's correct I mean we're, we're in times now that you know as everyone knows we've never seen before and what we do know is that there has been a lot of great work in women's football You know, even here in New Zealand, we've had to go through lockdown periods where, um, you know, things have just gone on on hold. And, uh, you know, with the help of FIFA there, that means that in all these nations around the world that that doesn't happen. And, uh, you know, the continuation of development in in the women's game continues in all the regions of the world. And we've seen it here in Oceania as well. We've seen it in the Cook Islands. We've seen it in Fiji They've, you know, they've started to now uh, release... Some news around the new women's league that's starting up there in Cook islands have just had a couple of seminars there in regards to development of the women's game so these are small countries around the world but their their development in the women's game has increased you know double over the, the last 10 years triple even so in order to get where we want to get it needs to continue with that investment and uh, you know thankfully for fifa they reach every corner of the world and and that benefit is going to is going to trickle all the way down to all the uh, the kids that are playing all around the world.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned so many of the sport smaller nations in sort of the Oceania region, which is where you are. I mean, how how far away is the football level that they want to reach? Is it are we talking sort of very basic levels, or do you see a lot of potential?
1: Yeah, look, we're talking uh, uh, basic levels, but you, you know you need to start somewhere and. And the countries that produced uh, in Oceania have produced some great players, and uh, not just from New Zealand, but from all over Oceania. So, you know, there's no reason why in, on the woman's side that can't happen as well. But there's all those gems that are hidden all around Oceania, and uh, it's our right to develop every country and to give the kids a chance to play football at the best they can. And with the help of FIFA there, then, and the foundation, and, and the funding coming through the uh, COVID fund, and during this, uh, you know, pandemic, you know, that's going to help those kids be able to dream big.
0: Ivan, it's been so great to hear all your thoughts, but uh, before you go, we have to talk about some of your career highlights, and with a career that spanned 23 years across three continents, I'm sure there are plenty. I mean, you can't travel now, but you did plenty of times over those 23 years. If you could pick out one moment as the highlight of your career, what would it be?
1: Yeah, that's a very tough question, very tough question, yeah. It has been uh, an incredible journey, and uh, as I said previously, you know, just... Just experiencing that was has been an honour to play for my country and, and to be able to play professional and, and to have all those experiences. It's—it's a, it's a dream come true. So, you know, very lucky, very blessed, and very hard to pick on, on the one moment. I mean, there's so many great times that I've had with players, with teams, and 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 it's been—it's uh, been very tremendous. Yeah, to probably, you know, to pick a couple would be obviously to go to the World Cup. You know, when, uh, in South Africa, that was something very special in 2010. It was a dream come true. To have that uh, experience with a lot of good close friends and that, and to be part of a team that, that represented New Zealand at, at the World Cup for the first time since 1982 was was something very special. And, uh, you know, and on the club scene as well, experiencing a club World Cup with uh, my club team, Auckland City, and coming uh, third and earning a bronze medal at the Club World Cup was incredible at 2014 in, in Morocco. So, yeah, look, there's a couple of great highlights here, but there's, there's many, many more that... Um, that I've experienced, and, and, and just very lucky to be to be blessed to be able to to share that now.
0: And we talked about it earlier, actually. The the World Cup in uh, 2010, the FIFA World Cup in South Africa. You were the only unbeaten team in that competition, which is just incredible. Um, do you remember the Vuvuzelas?
1: Absolutely. I think I've got one on the cupboard.
0: <laughs> do you ever uh, play
4: it? <laughs> yeah, they going
1: off. no, I haven't played it lately, but they were going off, and, uh, yeah, that was a great, it was a credit atmosphere there. I mean. Uh, you know, to be involved there, it's, it's, I remember standing in the tunnel of one of the games, uh, I think it was the first game and just, you know, have that little moment to yourself and just thinking, well, wow, you know, this is incredible. I'm actually in the tunnel walking out to a World Cup game and, um, you know, the journey to get there was incredible. I mean, we, we had a tough road through Oceania and then we experienced a home and away game against Bahrain where we played a an away fixture and, and extreme heat and, uh, you know, under the pump a lot and, and just defending and saving things off our line. But, you know, we came through that result zero, 0 and we were able to to come back to New Zealand and put in an incredible performance in Wellington to a sold-out stadium with, um, you know, every single person in the country just probably glued to their TVs. And and I don't know if you know, but New Zealand, you know, football in New Zealand is not a national sport. It's, um, you know, you know, rugby, we have cricket, we have other sports that are great and they, they have so much success. And so, you know, on that night um, in Wellington, it was a incredible night and to come away with a one-all victory with uh, you know a a goal scored by Rory Fallon and uh, a friend of mine and and another good friend Mark Peston saving a penalty so all the drama was there but um, you know the journey to get there made it even sweeter.
0: What was your sort of journey in terms of your influences then who did you have a hero growing up because as you say you know football in New Zealand wasn't a big national sport so who were your footballing icons yeah
1: look a lot of that was on tv you know And obviously football back then is not on tv like it was here so um i remember watching an AC Milan final against Barcelona at 4am in the morning going to someone's house and watching it on tv because I didn't have the channel in my house or something and and getting inspired by the international football that we got to watch on TV. You know, locally here, obviously my family was supportive, you know, looking up to my dad and and my parents and how they they, they brought me up. I, I played in the backyard of my brother and cousins and it was twenty four seven for me football and I loved it. And um, you know, locally we here we had here Winton Rofer who who was a superstar for New Zealand and and you know, winning the Cup Winners Cup with Verter Bremen and, and being incredible. And and for a youngster at that time, it was probably only Winton that was was overseas playing as a pro. So, you know, it was these things that that as players you cling to and you 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 dream about. And um, you know, along with that comes all the hard work and the rest of it and a little bit of luck. But the journey's long and and, and, and that hardship always uh, makes those beautiful moments that bit
0: yeah, absolutely. It does. And you mentioned one of your highlights, uh, the 2014 FIFA Club World Cup. You won the the bronze ball there and you were voted the third best player in the tournament behind Cristiano Ronaldo and Sergio Ramos. I mean, that is quite an incredible uh, two players listed ahead of you. What an achievement that must have been for you.
1: Yeah, it was an incredible achievement for me. And, uh, you know, but the the big thing for me was the performance that the team did. You know, we're, we're a amateur team from New Zealand doing our best and you know we have uh, we try to have the best structure we can at the club we try to be as professional minded as we can as we can and at the time you know we had a great coach Ramon Trulic, and, uh, and you know and invested in us many many hours on a, a, a good style of football and we managed to go to the tournament and and get through to the uh, take the third place as a team I and mean, for a team from New Zealand it's it's never been done before and um you know, it was an incredible experience. And to again, experiencing that with a lot of teams that had been in that team together was for two or three years at the time. So the, the hard grits and the work. And, you know, we played against teams like uh, Cruises all you know, I mean, this is a massive team and uh, with a high budget. And to be able to come across those teams and to get victories, you know, the people in the football industry, they understand how difficult it is. So it was a great time for, for me, for the club and for the country. And, and as we mentioned earlier, it helped develop football in New Zealand. And, it, and it's up there with you know the experiences that we had and the results that we've got you know at the World cup with the uh with the awards,
0: looking back at all that you've achieved you know with all the the obstacles you had to overcome, not least watching football at four a m in the morning and um, do you see yourself as a as a bit of a trailblazer and a bit of an inspiration for the younger generation? I know it's sometimes hard to see yourself in that way, but now you have the benefit of looking back at what you've achieved do you see that well you never
1: really see that you're right, you never really see that, but yeah you look know, i i um I aspire to try and do as best as I can, you know, and and work hard and, and, and try to, you know, I dreamt to play at the World Cup and, and, and along the lines, those things happen. So, you know, along those lines, it, it comes, and that's a responsibility that come to come to be role models for the kids. And, you know, and hopefully there's one or two kids out there that have helped to inspire and, and help to work hard and to play football and, and also to be a good person as well. I mean, that's the other side of it, you know, the values of, of being a good player and being a role model is to, to help kids grow into, into good people and hopefully they can do that and also you know uh, do wonderful things in football for New Zealand and for themselves and um, you know there's many more I mentioned a few on, on the Zoom there are many more players from New Zealand that have done that and are doing that now and, and hopefully with the uh, the more exposure we have to these tournaments, then uh, we can have more players playing overseas and, and more performances from New Zealand national teams at World Cups.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, you are you have that direct relationship now with that next generation. You're now an assistant coach at Auckland City FC. Um, how have you found the transition from playing to coaching?
1: Yeah, it's not that easy, really, to be honest. It, uh, <laughs>
0: more responsibility.
1: There is longer hours as well, so uh, you've got to look after more, but... Yeah, look, it's great to be on the grass with the players and, and, and to try and help them develop and to, you know, to help the club uh, keep going well and strong and performing well and, and, and those players come through to develop and, and and become good players and good people as well. So, yeah, look, it's a great experience at the moment. There's a, there's a few things going on, but one of those is working as an assistant coach for Alcon City and it's... Uh, It's a great experience. I'm enjoying that and we'll see where that leads, yeah.
0: Ivan, it's been so wonderful to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from New Zealand. We hope you've enjoyed the show as well. Please subscribe to us via your favourite podcast provider. Make sure you join us in a couple of weeks when we'll be hearing from two true legends of the game. France's Yuri Jorkaev and England's Lucy Bronze. Remember to head to FIFA.com to watch the Living Football TV show and for comprehensive coverage of all FIFA's tournaments and initiatives. And if football and music are your thing, make sure you subscribe to the FIFA Play On podcast, hosted by One Direction's Liam Payne. But until next time, from myself and from Ivan, it's goodbye.